begin again this week by sharing an, Im an image with you to help us focus our thinking. And the message that I want to convey with this particular image is that life is about the choices we make. James would write, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Why does he say that? Because our lives are filled with decisions, with choices that are really pretty open-ended. In an article subtitled, The Great Choices of Strategic Leaders, Joel Humans, I hope I haven't destroyed his name, H-O-O-M-A-N-S. He's assistant professor of management and leadership at Roberts Wesleyan College. He wrote this, Various internet sources estimate that an adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. In contrast to that, a child makes about 3,000. He goes on to say, this number may sound absurd, but in fact, we make 226.7 decisions each day on just food alone, according to researchers at Cornell University. As your level of responsibility increases, so does the smorgasbord of cho choices you are faced with. Now, what he is saying, by this last sentence especially, is that not only is life about choices that we make, but our choices have consequences. I'm amazed, I really am, at the lack of thought given by some preachers and teachers as to the implications of what they're saying by the way that they have interpreted the Word of God. Some of those things we have said for years without stopping to think of the full implications. At stake, the issue is how we understand God's knowledge, His providence, His love. And the big words being omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful. Here's my question. Do you believe, do you really believe that God has created each of us as free beings who have the ability to choose between right and wrong? Do we have, as James says, the ability to choose where we're going to go and when we're going to go there? Or are we just pawns in a game of life that God is playing? It must have been His time. God wanted another angel in heaven. I recently heard a minister say that where you are at any given minute is right where God has placed you. Listen to me. That, my friends, is a very old false teaching known as fatalism. Such a view eliminates your freedom to choose. Therefore, it eliminates your responsibility regarding your behavior. The truth of the matter is that where you are at any given time is where God can use you, but the reason you're there might be to evil, immoral, or even 
irresponsible choices that you've made. Jesus clearly defined the ruler of this world as the evil one. The deceiver. Satan. But, even if we've made a bad choice, and we've landed somewhere where we really shouldn't be, God can still use us wherever we're planted. All we've got to do is repent and make ourselves available to God. Here, however, is where the problem's located. And I think we can see the need very, very clearly. As one writer has put it, you're free to make your own choices, but you're not free to choose the consequences. Let me give you an example. Coming home from New Hampshire on Sunday afternoon, after we attended church that morning at Movement Christian Church, because one of my rules is that we don't miss church to travel. And so we left after church was over, and because of that, we didn't get in until 7.58 Monday morning. But still, we, uh, we were worshiping there with them, and as we approached the Pennsylvania state line, I don't know if it was out of sheer boredom or just trying to get a conversation going. I started telling uh, my other son and my wife and daughter that there would be a sign at the Pennsylvania line that would catch their attention. And of course the sign wasn't there. Uh, I was hoping to point out a sign that used to be there at the Pennsylvania line that had all of the speeds listed exceeding the speed limit and then next to it the corresponding fine that you would pay and the sign used to say very succinctly and clearly choose your speed wisely now the message of that sign was that you could choose to go whatever speed you wanted which by the way I understand is the reason why those signs were removed people were saying that it was encouraging speeders uh, you could freely choose your speed but the consequences of your behavior had been predetermined the overarching theme of this first chapter of 2 Thess Thessalonians is thanksgiving and judgment regarding the choices that were being made by the Christians at Thessalonica as well as by their persecutors. And the need is for us to realize the importance of making good choices, good decisions. So let's go to the text. <coughs> Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Much the same as how 1 Thessalonians began. Same three people listed as writers. The church is once again described as being the church of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this case, the same greeting of grace and peace, except the one exception is he adds that grace and peace are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the source. But then he goes on. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for the one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness 
and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to, to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. In verses 3 and 4, Paul begins by thanking God for the right choices that they have made. As was the case in the first letter, the second letter begins with an expression of heartfelt thanksgiving to God for His blessing on the Thessalonian church. There's an important difference though. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul remembered gratefully their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And we have talked about that almost every week as we've looked at Thessalonians. Now, he emphasizes that these two qualities, two of these qualities are progressing. Your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other, each for all and all for each, literally in the Greek, is increasing. Now let me note at this point, the idea of spiritual growth seems to be foreign to many people not least in the areas of faith and love. We tend to speak of faith in static terms as something that we have or don't have. I wish I had your faith, we say, like I wish I had your complexion as if it were a genetic endowment. Or we'll say something like, uh, I've lost my faith. Like I've lost my glasses as if it were a commodity. Faith is a relationship of trust in God. And like relationships, faith is a living, dynamic, growing thing. Additionally, I believe it's significant, and you might have noticed, that Paul omits any mention of hope in his thanksgiving. He included it back in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and he wrote about it in the body of the letter. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul encouraged them to be hopeful when he wrote, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, don't lose hope. 
based on the content of this letter, 2 Thessalonians, I think it's pretty obvious that their hope was lacking. They had not received His words on hope as readily as they had the words He gave on faith and love. And as we continue in the text, our interpretation, our understanding of verse 5 is a pivotal verse for proper understanding of the whole letter. And, unfortunately, it resists any easy explanation. There are three possible answers. The evidence, uh, you know, where he he questions... uh, uh, or he raises the question, or the question is raised as to what constitutes the evidence for the righteous judgment. Um, he, he points out that the evidence, or the, the three answers, excuse me, I'm getting all jumbled here. The three possibilities are that the evidence is their endurance and faith, or that they are experiencing persecution and affliction, or the evidence is their endurance and faith in the face of persecution and affliction. All three of those are possible the way verse 5 is written. Now, in my own ponderings, as I've studied this, I've come to the conclusion based on the context that the focus of this passage is not on the specifics of the return of Christ, but on the result of that return. Paul is pointing to suffering as the evidence of their choices. Both the choices of the Christians being persecuted as well as the choices made by the persecutors. In fact, Paul says that he sees in the Thessalonians not only evidence of God's grace in their lives but also evidence of the righteous judgment of God. But what is it in their experience, in their situation, that Paul perceives as this evidence? What is the plain indication that God's judgment is right and that it is judged? Some see the very fact that they were undergoing suffering for Christ as the evidence. And you know what? A consistent message of the New Testament is that if we are living the Christian life like we are supposed to be living it, we will experience persecution and problems. For others, it's the faith, love, and endurance that they're displaying in the midst of the suffering. I don't see any reason why it can't be both. Jesus taught that suffering was the unavoidable path to glory, both for Himself and for His followers. Similarly, in Acts chapter 14, Paul insisted that it is only through the tribulations that we enter God's kingdom. And that only if we share in Christ's sufferings will we ever share in His glory. So, suffering and glory, tribulation and the kingdom, they all belong inseparably to one another. Our life is to be a life of sacrifice. Cross-shaped. Cruciform. Therefore, since God was allowing these Christians at Thessalonica to suffer, they could know that He was preparing them for glory. 
that their suffering was itself evidence that the justice of God was working itself out in their lives. On the other hand, because God is just, Paul says that God will publicly vindicate all who have been persecuted or martyred. And we read about that also in Revelation 6. Remember when the martyrs are crying out? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Paul's message here in 1 Thessalonians is that when Christ returns, He's going to reverse the fortunes of both groups. The persecutors and the persecuted. And what Paul is saying essentially is is that God is going to pay back trouble to the troublemakers. Verse 6. And He'll give relief from affliction to those who have been afflicted, including the apostles. Verse 7. One of our really bad habits, myself included, is that sometimes we only look on the surface of things and we quickly make superficial comments. We see the malice, the cruelty, the power and arrogance of evil men who persecute. We also see the sufferings of the people of God who are opposed, ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured. And this week I receive a magazine uh, that deals with contemporary situations of martyrdom. And just a couple of weeks ago, or probably a month ago because of publication times, another Christian and several Christians martyred in Central Africa. Simply because they were believers in Jesus Christ. The problem of evil is a burning question for those who are suffering. Why is this happening? Probably one of the most troubling questions that human beings have to confront. Christians who believe themselves to be the people of God, those who have received God's salvation and are experiencing the fulfillment of His eternal promises, they have an even more difficult question to answer. If God's really on their side, if He's really loving, if He's really all-powerful, why do they have to suffer? And Paul's assurance of the righteousness of God's future judgment naturally prompts three questions. First, when will God vindicate His justice and redress the present imbalance of our human experiences? And Paul gives us the answer. This will happen, he says, when the Lord is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. Verse 7. Yes, that's what we call apocalyptic language. However, it points to a real event in time and space. No rapture. If you've heard that taught, I'm sorry. It's not in the Bible. It didn't come up till the 1800s. No rapture. No seven years of tribulation. That's not in Revelation. Those who study Revelation with us. Please, 
don't lessen the tribulation that the early Christians, the first Christian or first century Christians were facing, those at Thessalonica, nor, nor what's currently going on around the world. We are living in an age where tribulation is going on. We have been since the ascension of Jesus and we will be until He returns. We are living in the last days. We have been since the ascension of Jesus and we will be until the day that He returns. <coughs> so the second question relates to who's going to be punished when our Lord returns as judge. And again, Paul writes, He's going to punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 8. It seems though Paul is describing unbelievers in general. The emphasis is really on those who willfully reject both the knowledge of God and the gospel of Christ. In fact, one translation stresses this willing willfulness by calling them those who refuse to acknowledge God and who will not obey the gospel. Third question, what's their judgment going to be? And this is probably one of the most debated subjects of end times. Paul says that they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. The Greek sentence there reads, eternal destruction away from the preposition, away from the presence of the Lord. Whether that means just going off into oblivion, uh, some say eternal punishment in the fires of hell, I don't know. I don't know. Some of the passages that talk about those fires have been misapplied to hell when they were really talking about the valley of Gehenna there outside of Jerusalem. From this passage, it seems that that eternal destruction is what's known as uh, <coughs> eternal separation, annihilation, ceasing to exist. I wish I did know. But I don't. What I do know is that Paul's emphasis is not so much on destruction of the wicked as it is on their separation from God. For example... The Revised Standard Version notes that the punishment will be eternal destruction and exclusion. Those words combined in a Greek formula that says you can't take them apart. It's not two things. It's one. Exclusion from the presence of the Lord. By the way, even though John tells us succinctly that God is love, that statement doesn't exhaust our knowledge of God. We're also told God is merciful. We're told God is just. I do know this. God's desire is not to condemn. 
We need to take account what Paul wrote to Timothy. God's desire in 1 Timothy 2.4 is, quote, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We might go back to a verse we've all probably memorized and quoted. And you see placards at ball games and parades. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only beloved Son that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I wish we'd have memorized verse 17 with it. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. You see, Paul wrote to Timothy God's plan was for salvation. But it included giving us freedom. I'm stepping out there again. You know what that means. I hope by now you understand that hell was not created for humans. Did you hear me? Devil and his angels. Absolutely. Go with me to Matthew chapter 25. Always test whatever I say by the Bible. Not by what you've been taught. Not by what you've heard. Not by what you feel. But by the Bible. It's the goats and the sheep passage. You know the one I'm talking about? The final judgment. Jesus is teaching. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, in Jesus' teaching, who is He referring to every time He uses the phrase Son of Man? Himself. Every time. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. In other words, when I return and all the angels with Him, what Paul just wrote in Thessalonians, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And He'll place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Read carefully. Does it say that He is the one designating them as sheep and designating them as goats? No. They arrive as sheep and as goats. They came that way based on the choices that they made during their lives. And when he addresses those on the left, the goats, here's what it says in verse 41. Then he says, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who was hell prepared for? The devil and His angels. It wasn't created for us. And God doesn't want us to go there. But, He gives us the freedom to choose. Life is about choices. Choices have consequences. And you're free to make your own choices. But you're not free 
to choose the consequences. You see, for Paul, evil was not merely a sickness. That's how our current society wants to label it. People do evil things and they say, oh, they must have been sick. For Paul, evil was not merely a sickness, but it was a consequence of conscious rebellion against God and submission to his adversary, the devil. Read what he says, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. In Paul's thought, forgiveness is therefore costly. God's justice demands appropriate payment for sin, namely the death of Jesus. But think about that for a second. We believe Jesus to be God, don't we? Don't get the image that God the Father is forcing Jesus the Son down there on the cross just so that He in His wrath can beat Him up because of sin. Jesus is God. God is placing Himself on the cross as Jesus in love to pay the penalty for our sin. He's giving Himself. And only in light of God's judgment can the full extent of His love and forgiving grace be seen. Through His Son, yes, Romans 3.23-26, He does provide the substitutionary payment for our sin. But if some then refuse His offer and even oppose it, they're fully responsible for their actions. And God's justice demands a retributive punishment for them. Now listen, that doesn't give us permission to be gleeful and happy and say, oh yeah, they're going to get there someday. Eric sent me a text. They're doing Jonah this week in high school week. Runaways. He said, do you want Jonah 3 or Jonah 4? And I very quickly responded, Jonah 4. Because in Jonah 4, you'll find that when Nineveh repented, when those runaway pagans repented and came back to God, Jonah got mad. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to be punished, those dirty pagans. We don't have the right to go that route. And that's where God takes Jonah in chapter 4. People are free to choose. And that's why it's so important for you and I to be helping them make good choices. But they, nor we, can choose the consequences. So where do we get the power to enable us to make righteous choices? That's what you read in verses 11 to 12. That's what it's all about. Paul closes out this first section, which for us is the first chapter, with a prayer that consists of two parallel petitions. The first is that God may count you worthy of His calling. Back in verse 5, the verb used there does not mean to make yourselves worthy, nor does it mean that here. 
We can't make ourselves worthy, no matter how hard we try. We can't accumulate enough merit. No, when God called us to Himself through Christ, He did it by means of grace because we are present tense. Not were. We are unworthy. I'm unworthy. I thank God that in His eyes He sees me as worthy because of what Christ Jesus did. But I'm unworthy. And so Paul's second petition is this. That by His power He'll fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your love. The second part of verse 11. Again, every purpose of goodness, every act of faith. And therefore his prayer is that God's going to fulfill both by His power so that they issue in good deeds. And that's where we get the power. Not from our own abilities, but by God's power. Even the translation of thoughts into actions is not, however, the ultimate goal of Paul's prayers. He has a higher and nobler motive still. And that's namely the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to conclude this morning with my challenge to you. It comes from verse 12. My challenge to you is to live in such a way that our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and therefore you will be glorified in Him. That's what he says. We pray this so that our, the name of our Lord, that is when, God's, when by God's power, we as God's people live a life worthy of His call, and when our resolve issues in goodness and our faith in works, then Jesus Himself is seen and honored in us. And we, through union with Him, are seen in our true humanness as the image of God. And that's the reward. The result of beautiful, God-honoring choices. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You 